you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You have heard that it was said, do not break your oath. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, Good morning. Welcome to LDSC. My name is Matt Sawada, one of the pastors here. And uh, it, again, is a privilege, it's an honor to open God's word with you. I've been praying for this morning. I've been praying that God would use it for his glory, that God would use it to, to strengthen us as a church, and that God would use it to just change hearts. This morning, if you're with us, maybe for the first time, maybe you're with us and forgot a Bible, I've got some friends, these ushers, they're coming down. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. They'd love to, to pass you one. Uh, if you don't have one at home, please feel free to keep this. It's our gift to you. Um, or if you have your cell phone, open up to the Uversion app, click on events, and you can find LEFC. Both this Bible and that app are helpful tools to follow along as we step through God's word this morning. Well, as you just saw in this bumper video, and that, that little intro video, it, we've just changed gears. That was a new one, wasn't it? I loved hearing God's word just kind of spoken that way. But today we're beginning a mini-series in the Sermon on the Mount. We've just finished one in the Beatitudes in which Christ has redefined what attitudes are important and describing what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven should look like. So this next mini-series kicks off today, and we're going to look at six statements where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. He sets this up for us in chapter 5, verse 17, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, chapter 5, verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that gives me so much hope. He didn't come to abolish what God had set in place in Exodus He'd come to be its fulfillment. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not criticizing the Old Testament. He's not shaming God for what he created back then. No. Jesus is reinterpreting what the Pharisees and scribes have been teaching the people. And they're off. <laughs> They've misunderstood the Pharisees and the scribes, they misunderstood what the law was meant to do. They've been living and teaching 
others to, to live by the letter of the law and to strive for this outward obedience. And Jesus is saying, nope. In verse 20, in that same little section, kind of read from 17, verse 20, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Christ is popping this concept. He's redefining the righteous standard the Pharisees have set and is pressing it beyond the surface, beyond this shell of obedience and calling us to live not by the letter but by the spirit of the law. Because God is the one who gave us the law that exposes our sin, he is also the same God who sent his son to be the law fulfiller and their savior who offers redemption from these sins. Basically, what God is saying, it's your heart that matters, not your obedience. Now, this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at the first, of these, the first two of these six statements. The first two that, that Jesus kind of pokes at happen to be commandments. We're going to look this morning at commandment number six and commandment number seven. And these two commandments are the ones regarding murder and adultery. And before you check out, believe it or not, it's incredibly applicable to every single one of us in this room, even if you haven't committed murder. That's a joke, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> Thank you. It's early this morning, right? It's early. Well, as Jesus looks at commandment six and commandment seven, he begins to reframe these laws, essentially stating that the moral equivalent of murder is anger, and that the moral equivalent of adultery is lust. So while murder and adultery might not be applicable, anger and lust certainly are. These two issues within culture today are very, very prevalent. I don't remember a time, I'm only in my 40s, I don't remember a time where it's been this acceptable to be publicly angry. Within the last 12 months, culture's changed. With the, the myriad of polarizing opinions, medically, politically, with all the things, it's been really okay to be brutally honest and angry about what's happened. There's a sense in which, hey, I can post whatever I want to post, and I am completely justified to say it as harsh as I want to. Have you guys felt that change? It's become a little bit more out there. It feels more public for some reason than ever before. Let me ask you this. How has your attitude been these last 12 months? Have you felt those blood boiling moments? How have your posts been on social media? So while anger, what kind of feels like has been predominant within culture these days, so has sexual immorality. 
sexuality within culture has been changing. Look at the gender conversations that are happening. Look at the conversations about marriage that's changing. Let's just take pornography, for instance. An easy search came up with some of these statistics. Of all the websites there are, 12% of them are pornographic. Ugh, it hurts. Did you know that 25% of all searches on the, on the internet are porn-related? One-third of all internet porn users are, are women. Do you know that Sunday is the most popular day for viewing porn? And do you know that Thanksgiving, which is what you'd think would be a family day, randomly in here, is the most popular day of the year for viewing porn. You see, there's an increase in pornography has drastically affected culture's perspective on sex. Are are you contributing to this movement on porn? So while we're we're living in an anger-infused context, you could argue that it's also a sex-saturated one. The songs on the radio and the movies and the sitcoms, sex is a major theme in all of it. Jesus reframing these two commandments is absolutely applicable to us in 2021. One, anger is often very public, while the other, lust, is often very private. But both of these sins are inherently about ourselves. We often get angry because someone disagrees with something I think is right, or maybe they disagree with something I do. When someone lusts, They are longing, and in this case, sexually, for something they want and possibly are convinced that they deserve. See, in these moments of anger and lust in particular, who who is on the throne of your heart? Who is your life about in those moments? It's you. You're getting what you want. You are the subject of your angry and lust-filled reactions. J.D. Greer, who's an author, a pastor down in North Carolina, he says this, Jesus doesn't say, take up my teachings and follow me. He doesn't say, take up my moral code. No, he says, take up my cross. Jesus doesn't want your perfect performance. He wants your heart and he wants your life. Would you pray with me before we jump into this text together? Father, again, we just thank you for your son, Jesus. As Alex read from Galatians 2, Father, we thank you that it is Jesus, that we've been crucified with Christ and we no longer live. It is Christ who now lives in me. And so, Father, I I pray today that through this text and through this time this morning, you would allow us to trust in Christ in every scenario in our lives. Expose the areas in which we're not. Lord, we love you. And we thank you again for an opportunity to open your word. 
and to see Christ this morning. Thanks, Father. Amen. So while the Pharisees stopped short at the literal translation of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, Jesus expands it to include anger. You see, anger is the root of these murderous desires. In almost every culture, cold-blooded murder is not acceptable. It's condemned. It's just not acceptable. Unfortunately, refraining from homicide does not constitute a person's righteous, righteousness in God's sight. We can't stand before him and say, hey, God, look, I didn't kill anybody. I'm righteous. That, that's, that's not enough. What Jesus does in verses 21 through 26 of Matthew 5 is that he places anger, I mentioned this before, as the moral equivalent to murder. From God's perspective, these two are on the same plane. Murder isn't acceptable. Well, neither is anger. Would you open to Matthew 5 with me? This is in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You see the parallels in those two sentences? Both are what? Subject to judgment. Whether you murder or whether you're angry, you're subject to judgment. Same phrase. Moral equivalence. They're on the same plane. I'm sure you've had the blood-boiling experience in which you lose control and say things maybe you didn't mean, or maybe you've said them stronger than you intended. It could be as simple as lashing out verbally. Again, in the example we get here in verse 22. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is anger, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So it could be as simple as lashing out verbally. Basically saying, you blockhead, you idiot, Raka. Or it could be uh, me assuming I'm up here and you're down here and what you're doing is foolish and I'm about to judge you for your actions. You fool. What are you thinking? It's a character assault. You know, there's nothing like a good traffic jam in the city to expose anger, right? You, you put a, a new cautious driver into downtown Philly during rush hour. <laughs> The choice words and gestures this individual will receive probably aren't from a kind and sincere spot in the other driver's lives. Imagine this driver trying to cross three lanes of traffic. <laughs> Not going to elicit a very favorable response. You're going to see that driving exposes anger almost better than anything else. You see, these responses are birthed from frustration and annoyance, essentially an angry heart. Well, see, his examples don't stop at um, me verbally assaulting you. He continues the illustrations in verse 23 to expose the times when someone else has something against me. 
And in these moments, he, he basically tells us, Jesus reminds us that reconciliation is a greater form of worship than approaching the altar with a gift. Let's read verses 23 through 26. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. As Tony, Pastor Tony, preached a couple weeks ago, the kingdom citizen is to value peacemaking, not just peacekeeping. And if there's anger from someone to you, Matthew 5 Deal with it. Take initiative to be reconciled to your brother or sister. Pursue reconciliation and settle matters quickly. You see, we know that that emotions are God-given. They're kind of the flavor to life, right? Anger, in in that sense, is is a God-given emotion. It's our response to it. It's when we take it on offense that it now becomes sinful. Anger in its purest form is is a God-given thing. It's us that taints it. It's our response to it that's sinful. And we often try to justify it as righteous. But deep down, we know it's not healthy. Anger has many faces. You see it in Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32. Paul pulls out his mental thesaurus and describes several different types of anger to us. Let me read Ephesians 4 to you guys this morning. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. But be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. If you were counting along, you'll notice in that verse, there are six. Yeah, count them. Six synonyms for anger. Bitterness, rage, anger. Okay, I guess five synonyms of anger. You conclude anger. It's number six. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice. Six types. Anger has a lot of different faces, doesn't it? This list isn't exhaustive. There are other lists that Paul uses in Colossians 3 and Galatians 5, but it's enough to note that anger comes in different shapes and sizes, different severities. It involves one's thoughts, one's words, and one's actions. Anger just isn't the the hole-punching, door-slamming, yelling kind of response. No. It could be everyday defensiveness or grumbling and complaining. It could be the, the seething silence. Have you guys ever felt that? The, the silence, you know someone's just ticked off, but they're not dealing with it. It could be any version of turning away from someone in judgment. All of these things make the anger list. 
along with the obvious hotter versions, the door punching. I'm sorry, door slamming, hole punching. There we go. Angry people are often blind to their own anger. Anger is a sin that blinds. Typically, the angrier you are, the, the more extreme the anger, one counselor writes, the more confident they are of their rightness and the more unaware they are of both their anger's sinful roots and destructive disposition. What angry people are sure of is that the problem lies in the object of their anger, not in themselves. So, so if you felt this blood-boiling anger, it's typically because of this over here or that person over here. The problem isn't in you. It's in them. It's outside of you. And the, the problem is with this is it makes repentance and change hard, doesn't it? You often don't see the need to repent, the need to change. So the first takeaway this morning is I'm going to challenge you guys to slow down. I want you to notice. Pause. Identify this week the triggers in your own heart, the slippery slopes in which you feel anger beginning to bubble. Call it what it is and confess. Don't blame shift. Own it. Confess it before the Lord as well as someone close to you. And choose in that moment to walk according to the Spirit, trusting and allowing Him to calm your heart and to produce peace, patience, and joy rather than anger, rage, and malice. It's easier said than done, but it begins with noticing. Well, just like with the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, the Pharisees took the seventh commandment and stop short at the literal translation as well. Let's look at uh, Matthew, 20, Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You shall not commit adultery. Again, Jesus expands it. He takes this commandment and expands it to include the spirit of the law, not just the letter. By taking it a step further, he's speaking to the heart. What leads you to commit adultery is the lustful intent of your heart. And here, heart in scripture is used to describe the core of who you are. It's in Psalms quite often. It's in Luke 6. Matthew 15. You see, lust, coveting, and greed are all heart problems. This is an inner man issue. You don't need to touch a woman to commit sin. You just need to longingly and lustfully look at and objectify another person. And when we do that, it's the evidence of the sickness of sin in our hearts. What Jesus then goes on to say in verses 29 and 30 is that he's calling us to radical obedience. Radical obedience. 
Verses 29 in Matthew 5. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So on the surface, he's saying, hey, don't look, don't touch, right? Don't look, don't touch. But I would say there's some layers to this text. So the first layer is that. Eyes, hands, you're bad, you're bad, cut them out, throw them away. Okay. The point here, though, is not to encourage us to physically harm ourselves. Let me say this loud and clear. Jesus is not preaching self-harm. This is not a self-harm text. No, he's using exaggeration for effect. He wants us to understand how serious sexual sin is, and he wants to encourage us to take extreme measures against it. Be extreme. It's better for you to be physically deformed than to spend an eternity in hell. He's not telling you to cut your hand off. He's telling you to be extreme in the way you fight against it. Paul emphasizes the significance of this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Sexual sin almost has a whole nother category in Paul's eyes. Flee from it. Run from it. Do whatever you can to avoid these temptations. However, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's, an, there's a, a principle that goes underneath all this. See, all of this in some ways is hyperbole because Jesus just stated that our hearts are where the sin resides. We can't pluck out our heart. It's not our hand that sins. It's not our eye that sins. The sin's internal. What he wants us to do is to take up his cross and die. To take his perfect obedience, we need the righteousness provided to us by Jesus. Because we all, every single one of us, has a sexuality that has been affected and impacted by sin. And as I mentioned earlier, we live in an angry, sex-saturated culture. It's always, since Adam and Eve, been broken sexually. It's always been that way. It's just accessed easier today than it ever has been. What extreme measures are you taking to avoid these sexual pitfalls? Are you? Internet security? Accountability? Open conversation? LAFC, don't fall into that prideful trap that you are above or immune to this kind of sexual immorality or temptation. Again, Paul uses thesaurus in Colossians 3 to help us understand a bit about sexual sin. Colossians 3 verse 5 says, put to death therefore 
whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, it's because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Again, five synonyms for what could be called lust that are birthed from our earthly nature. It's, it's not sex or the desire for it that's bad, it's how we idolize it and objectify it. Sex in itself is a gift from God. It's a beautiful gift from God. And it should, or at least it was intended to, lead us to right worship, not become an object of worship. It's not shameful or dirty. It should be celebrated and praised, not objectified. One counselor said it's a signpost from God, and he goes on to describe it more as a piece of chocolate cake rather than a source of life. It's a, it's a gracious gift. It's just not life-sustaining. Imagine someone having a diet of only chocolate cake for 31 days. Some of you are like, I'm in. I would imagine you'd feel pretty bad at the end of that month if you're still with us. <laughs> See, this signpost exposes some of the deepest and scariest questions we as humans can ask. And this is why it's so important to us. At the root of it, it's, it's basically saying, will someone love me? At the root, it, once, once someone knows me, will they still love me? It's incredibly vulnerable. And it's because of this vulnerability, the depth of these questions, that it's, it's way easier to find temporary satisfaction in much less vulnerable ways. Which is why we have a hookup culture with one night stands and apps to make it way too simple to do that. It's why the internet is a portal into a multitude of options. I gave you the stats earlier. The problem Jesus is speaking to in these verses comes when sex is used outside of an intimate relationship God intended between a husband and a wife. Sexual addiction or porn specifically alienates us from one another and causes relational difficulty. It trains our brains to live in a fantasy rather than connect with real human beings. Selfishness is nurtured because it's instant gratification. It's sex isn't meant to be selfish. It's meant to be selfless. When we stumble into this fantasy world, it leads then to guilt and loneliness and isolation, and it's basically short-term exhilaration with a long-term lower quality of life because intimacy takes effort and patience and investment, but the reward is abundant life and love. Quitting porn Quitting sex addiction is a choice for more. It's hard. 
but it's choosing what God has given us rather than looking for satisfaction in something that is so much less. It's a choice every morning, every hour, every evening. And the decisions you make in the small moments of every day display your character, your person, and your identity. And it allows us to then be consistent in the big decisions in life. Well, this morning we've seen Jesus reinterpret these two commandments, taking them from rigid laws and expanding them to include sins we are very familiar with. The reality is that both anger and lust are windows into the deeper regions of our hearts. These sinful situations in our lives are opportunities to begin to understand why we do what we do. Maybe yesterday, there was an instance in which you inappropriately lashed out at your son or daughter. You got angry at your two-year-old for asking why 19 times in a row. Or possibly this weekend, there was time in which you secretly made um, an effort to escape to images. Maybe these texts in Matthew 5 are making you wonder why you considered a relationship with that coworker appropriate and tempting to pursue in the first place. You see, these situations, while significant, are windows into actually what's going on underneath. What's going on in here? Remember, it's not the eye, it's not the hand, it's the heart. Is there a greedy and reckless pursuit of pleasure? Are you bored and looking for adventure? Do you consider yourself right and annoyed when someone would actually question the almighty you in a decision that you've made? Are you looking to escape pain or disappointment or stress in your life? Well, I see, I've got great news for you this morning. God, the one who gave us the law, which exposes our sin, is the same God who sent his son to both be the law fulfiller and our savior, our redeemer from these heart sins. The same God gave us the law, he gave us his son. Because of his perfect obedience, we don't have to attain it on our own like the Pharisees did in Matthew 5, verse 20. Because of his endless love for us, we can, without shame, confidently confess our sins to the God who sees us as righteous through Jesus. Because of his imputed righteousness, this gift he's given us, we can repent of these sins and choose to live according to his spirit not our own desires. And it's because of the confidence we have through Christ, we can turn to community, to each other, and openly share and lovingly receive grace. It's that Jesus that we're worshiping here this morning. My question to you this morning is, who are you turning to? Who are you turning to? 
But what are the windows, the snapshots of anger and lust exposing in your hearts? My guess is that in a room this size, including those listening on the radio and watching online, there are many who are presently struggling with either anger or lust or possibly both. And that's a safe assumption because I know that we're all human. That's one thing we all have in common, right? It's our humanity. There's freedom in Christ. I think a heart change like this is a commu- takes a community effort. Bring to light what is hidden and expose it. The conse- there are consequences, but let me tell you, freedom is worth it. Don't struggle alone. My challenge to everyone in this room is to do several things today. First off, whether it's anger or lust or something else, what I'd like you to do is just carve five or 10 minutes. Take time to confess your blindness to sin. Could be any sin. We're just blind to it. Again, we're all human. Take time to confess your blindness to sin and pray for the grace to see your sin for what it is. And then go to others. Go to the people who are around you and ask them to help you see what you probably wouldn't see without them. Would you do that for me? There's danger in that. It takes some humility. Once you've identified that sin, confess it. Confess it vertically. Maybe you have to confess it horizontally. Commit to changing and begin the process of repenting of that sin. Celebrate, lastly, celebrate the fact that your Savior will remove your blindness now and that one day not only blindness but anger and lust will forever end. I can't wait for that day. Anger and lust, as well as murder and adultery, are temporary struggles and are examples as to why Christ died. We need him. He's our righteousness and our defense. And we need him today. Would you please pray with me? Father, we need you. We need you. Lord, I pray that we would find satisfaction only in you. Lord, I pray that we would be dissatisfied today with the various things that we turn to. Father, I just thank you for for Jesus and for the fact that it's yet not I, but it is Christ. And so, Father, whether someone is sitting here this morning uh, and they, they, they realize they're a very angry individual. Lord, I pray that you would give them opportunities today to call it what it is, to confess it, and to, to process it, not only with you, but with someone who loves them. And Lord, I pray for those here in this room who have a tendency to lust. 
And whatever that looks like, whatever that sexual immorality in our lives looks like, Father, Lord, I, I pray that they would find dissatisfaction in whatever they're turning to. Father, more than that, I pray that they would find satisfaction in who you are, that you would be greater. Lord, I just pray for community to step up and in both of these instances and in the, within any sin, allow us to be the bride of Christ to Galatians 6, to carry the burdens and to both extend and receive grace well. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning. Lord, we need you. Amen. Amen. Church, would you stand with me? The end of Hebrews 4 says, let us with confidence approach the throne of grace. I just want to invite you to repeat this phrase from this song with me. We'll sing this a couple times together. The sin runs deep, your grace is more, where grace is found, is where you are. Sing, where sin runs deep, where sin runs deep, your grace is more, where grace is found, is where you are. Sing again, where sin, where sin runs deep, your grace is more, where grace is found, is where you are, and where you are, Lord, I am free, holiness is Christ Your grace is 
you join me today that when 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 temptation hits our prayer is that our song would rise to him rather than submitting to that temptation and turning to our own desires would you join me in turning to the God who actually can meet those needs and Psalm 139 beautiful psalm spend time in it later today at the end David's prayer is, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Will you join me today in praying that God would search us and know our hearts, that he would test us and know our anxious thoughts, our angry thoughts, and our lustful thoughts. We love you guys. If you need someone to talk to or pray with, we'll have some friends in the encounter room. I'd love to interact with you up here. Um, praying today that we would walk knowing that God loves us and that there is so much grace to trust in. Have a great Sunday.